Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In every episode, we'll talk about what's hot in the tax world and catch up on what you need to know. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. As we do every episode, we'll talk tax news and then focus on our hot tax topic. The hot topic this week is finding some sanity for taxpayers and tax pros in the midst of these extraordinary times. But first, here's what's happening in the tax world. Topping the news is the tax season filing deadline. As of today, the 2019 tax season deadline remains July 15, 2020. I just wanted to get that out of the way since there are so many headlines suggesting that there's a change on the way. But the IRS has officially said, nope, as of today, nothing has changed. If you need more time to file, you can always file for an extension. However, it's important to note that in 2020, an extension would extend the time to file by six months from the original due date, that's April 15, to October 15, and not six months from the revised due date, that's July 15, to January 15, 2021. Moving the filing deadline for federal income tax feels pretty straightforward, but the IRS has also moved the estimated payment deadlines. In April, the IRS clarified that the relief applied to estimated tax payments due June 15, 2020. Previously, the relief had only applied to the April 15 estimated payments, which had the absurd result of having the second quarterlies due before the first quarterlies. But now that's fixed. The date is uncomfortably close to the date that federal unemployment benefits run out. That's July 31st, 2020. Remember that unemployment benefits are taxable. And if you're not having tax withheld from your benefits, you may need to make estimated payments for those benefits. Those payments for the first and second quarters, the same quarters that you might have received those unemployment benefits, are due July 15. And yes, estimated payments for the first and second quarters are due on the same day, so you can write one check for both. But if you owe a 2019 income tax liability, as well as an estimated tax for 2020, you must make two separate payments, one for the 2019 income tax liability and one for the 2020 estimated tax payments. Complicating matters even further, under the CARES Act, employers may defer the deposit and payment of the employer's portion of Social Security taxes, but not Medicare taxes. The deferral applies to deposits and payments of the employer's share of Social Security tax that would otherwise be required to be made during the period beginning on March 27, 2020 and ending December 31, 2020. The deferred deposits of the employer's share of Social Security tax must be deposited by the following dates. On December 31, 2021, 50% of the deferred amount, and on December 31, 2022, the remaining amount. Yep, that's right, 2022, over two years from today. So what does that have to do with estimated tax? A considerable number of taxpayers who are subject to estimated tax are independent contractors or self-employed persons. There's an equivalent to the payroll tax deferral for self-employed individuals. Those folks may defer the payment of 50% of the Social Security tax on net earnings from self-employment income for the period beginning on March 27, 2020 and ending December 31, 2020. 
the dates for those deposits are the same as before. On December 31st, 2021, 50% of the deferred amount. And on December 31st, 2022, the remaining amount. This feels like a good thing because it allows you to hold on to more money, but I must confess that I'm a bit worried. Tax deferrals aren't the same as tax reductions or tax cuts. You still have to pay the tax. You're just kicking those payments down the road. And some taxpayers may not have the money to pay in 2021 or 2022. So whether you're a tax professional or a taxpayer, be thoughtful about whether to extend a return or how much you plan to defer. You can find out more about these stories as well as other items of interest on the blog at taxgirl.com. And if some of them have stressed you out, I do have some good news. Our hot tax topic is all about stress and will hopefully put you in a much more relaxed mood. Welcome to tax season. That feels weird to say in June, but it's true. Due to the COVID pandemic, filing and payment deadlines for federal income taxes and some state income taxes have been pushed to July 15, 2020. That feels like it would be a good thing, but many taxpayers and tax professionals are finding it to be just the opposite. In a normal year, nearly a third, about 29% of taxpayers worry they will be audited. That works out to about 50 million taxpayers, and this year is anything but normal. That sense of panic when April 15 is near is now dragging on to July 15. Some taxpayers are worried that they won't have the cash to pay in July. And some tax professionals are simply burnt out, having worked long hours and fielded calls from clients who have lost jobs and businesses. It's a lot. And this is the most stress that I've ever seen taxpayers and tax professionals alike as long as I've been practicing. It's something that I've been talking about with fellow tax pros on social. But beyond talking about it, I'm a little stuck about the best way to help. So I decided to call in the expert. Today's guest is Gina Cho who is the co-author of The Anxious Lawyer, An Eight-Week Guide to a Joyful and Satisfying Law Practice Through Mindfulness and Meditation. Like me, she's a lawyer at her own firm. She's a partner at the JC Law Group PC, a bankruptcy law firm in San Francisco, California. She is a regular contributor to the ABA Journal and Above the Law, where she covers resilience, work-life integration, and wellness in the workplace. And like me, she's also a mom. Thanks, Gina, for taking a few minutes to chat. Thanks so much for having me, Kelly. So one of the things I wanted to talk about right now is this anxiety that's really impacting taxpayers and tax professionals. And I know that we don't like to talk about it because there are so many stigmas that describe stressful situations, but what are some of the ways that anxiety actually affects people? Like, I think when we think about it, you know, we have a very specific definition of what we think anxious is, but how does it kind of manifest itself? Yeah, maybe it might be helpful to actually define what we mean when we talk about anxiety. So anxiety is this sort of worry about some future event. Um, And when you're worrying, it disturbs your physical or mental equilibrium. And, you know, when your physical or mental equilibrium disturbed, you can have things like, you know, repeating thoughts. Um, There can be a physiological disruption. So you might Notice that you're breathing faster. You might feel your stomach get knots. You might feel tension in your body. And all of those things are, of course, also sort of tied to the stress reaction as well. So those are just some of the ways that when we're talking about anxiety, it it can manifest itself. Right. And we talked about a lot this season with other tax pros. 
but it's also keeping people up at night, like worry about what's going to happen. And so I think then you kind of pile on the lack of sleep and it just kind of keeps going because you never have a moment to like be able to reset. Right. Yeah, there's that disturbance in your equilibrium. And of course, because we're humans, we are hardwired to also imagine the worst case scenario, right? Mm-hmm. So when we're thinking about, you know, what's going to happen in the future, what happens if I get audited, on and on and on, we sort of tend to imagine the absolute worst case scenario. We have this thing called a negativity bias. And the negativity bias is also helpful because it literally has helped us keep, right, keep the whole species alive. It's much more <laughs> important to remember that that berry can make you very, very ill versus, oh, that berry is very, very delicious. So I think a lot of the anxiety just comes from our own minds. And that's sort of the unique thing about being human is that, you know, we don't need to be in an actual danger in order to have that fight or flight reaction. Um, So when we're talking about like disturbance in sleep, noticing sort of extra energy in your body and noticing your heart racing, um, your stomach tightening, all of that is part of the fight or flight reaction. And we're sort of constantly triggering that reaction in our body. Right. It's it's interesting that you um, said that, you know, a lot of it is maybe not uh, fear that is existing right now for, for something that's happening right now, but something that you're worried about in the future, because that's actually something that we've been discussing because the IRS, of course, has been shut down during the pandemic. And they just announced recently that they have a backlog of more than 11 million pieces of unopened mail. So at some point, they're going to start answering this mail. And um, there was a statistic that uh, half of Americans, about 47%, feel anxious when they receive correspondence from the IRS. So knowing that a bunch of mail is coming our way, I actually think are causing anxiety levels to peak. And also because there's unopened mail. So, you know, there's been a lot of folks saying, why hasn't the IRS, you know, responded to me? Why aren't I getting a refund check? Is that, does that mean there's something wrong? So Mm. I think that there is like, when you mentioned, you know, kind of fear of the future, I think that is driving a lot of what's happening right now is this idea that we just don't know what's happening. And, you know, you, you form these fears, especially when it comes to the IRS, because folks already have this, perhaps, (laughs) maybe they've had a bad experience with uh, IRS um, in the past, but a lot of it really is just having heard horror stories, you know, and and they're completely scared about what might happen. And it's actually interesting when you talk to taxpayers who have been through either audits or tax court matters or whatever, and they often will come away from it saying, you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And I think a lot of life uh, events are like that, right? Like our imagination of how things are going to go often tends to be a lot worse than it, Mm -hmm. you know, actually is. I had a root canal done recently and I, in oh, my appointment, like a month out because, you know, of COVID and the entire month, I just kept imagining like going to a dentist and it was going to be horrible. And it was going to be so painful. And, you know, and I was losing sleep overnight. Think about it. And I can sort of feel, you know, the adrenaline rushing in the body. And you know what? Like I went and the whole procedure took maybe 30, 40 minutes. I listened to some really good music. And then it was done. And I was thinking like, oh my gosh, that really wasn't as bad as I had imagined. But I think we do that all the time in our own minds. Right. And not only do taxpayers worry about what's going to happen in the future and kind of maybe ramp that up in terms of how they're responding, but then you pile onto that tax professionals, which you know might include attorneys, accountants, enrolled agents. We often take on that, that anxiety for our clients. I've heard from a lot of 
taxpayers about losing their homes, their jobs, their businesses, and, and my colleagues mm-hmm. are in the same boat. And you know, it's hard because you're you're kind of transferring. You're not only dealing with what you're worried about, but now you're taking on the stress of of your clients. Like they're yeah. telling you these are the bad things that are happening to me. And and if you can't help them, especially with the IRS shutdown, a lot of that is, you know, you, you couldn't find those missing stimulus checks. It can be really stressful. And um, I've, you know, I've made no secret about the fact that I've received over 7,000 emails at this point from taxpayers, mm. most of them who are experiencing financial hardship, and they're literally sending messages and calling my office and saying, please help me. And when you can't help, it's really stressful. And I think that's something, you know, in the profession generally, whether you're an attorney or an accountant where, you know, it's a service profession, how do tax professionals and actually taxpayers, but how do we separate ourselves from the stress of not only what's going on in our own lives, but also counseling clients? Like, how do you find that separation? First and foremost, it's important to acknowledge what is happening, right? And, and that may seem kind of like, what? Of course, you know, we're acknowledging what's happening. But it's so I do, I used to do consumer bankruptcy law and very similarly, right? Like no one ever comes to visit a consumer bankruptcy lawyer with happy news. Like people that come <laughs> to see me are usually in deep distress. Right. And I would sort of, you know, I, and I think about my clients all the time. So I, you know, come home, I'd be doing the dishes. And I think about, you know, this poor mom, you know, who lost everything and it's now going through a divorce and now it's in $60,000 of credit card debt and like on and on and on. I fall asleep thinking about my clients. I'd wake up in the middle of the night thinking about my clients. I'd wake up in the morning thinking about my clients. And then when I would think about my clients, my next sort of automatic reaction would be, why are you thinking about this? You're at home. You should be sleeping. Don't think about it. Or so I would kind of engage in like negative self-talk. I would say, you're not the one that's going through a divorce. You're not the you know, you're not the person who had a, a you know significant person person die in your life. Like, why are you thinking about this? Stop it! Right? right, right. And so the first thing that I really had to learn is to practice self compassion. So actually pausing for a moment. So I'm doing the dishes and I'm thinking about this poor client that went through this horrible situation. And when I'm noticing that, say, wow, you know, that was a really hard experience for me to sit through that console with my client. And also because, you know, we are so limited in terms of the relief we can offer to our clients. Like, you know, in bankruptcy, for example, I can maybe help my clients get out of debt, but I'm never going to be able to sort of repair the life circumstances that led them to my office, right? So just to be able to say like, this is a really hard thing that I went through. And yes, you know, my client is suffering and I too am suffering. And just bringing a little bit of like self-kindness into the picture. You know, I think so often we can be so self-critical and we can be like very, very perfectionistic. And so just pausing and saying, this is a really hard event that I went through and what can I do to care for myself in this moment? I think that especially in the attorney profession, and I'm assuming it's similar in the accountant profession and, and EAs and such, you feel like, or you're maybe counseled to feel like, that when you take that moment and you try to step away from, how can I help? Or, you know, if you sit down for a moment and you're not working, there's this little voice in the back of my head that's like, why aren't you working? You know, at least you have a job. Think about the the 10 emails that you just got where people are unemployed. You need to go back to work. You need to, you need to fix this. And I think we're just so conditioned to, to fixing that it's hard to 
to have a moment where you say, okay, I think I need to take care of myself. And there's also this crazy message, right? That self-care is is kind of a luxury. Yeah. Yeah, that it's bad that you're being selfish, right? Right. You know, I think it's that saying like secure your own oxygen mask before helping others. So I I love like regularly get emails. Thank you. I regularly get emails from lawyers who are just like, I'm so burnt out. And I just feel guilty when all of my time isn't dedicated to either work or maybe like a little bit of like home life, right? Especially for the moms that are listening. Like there is this expectation that we be available for everybody else but ourselves. But the consequence of that is that then you're running on fumes. And when you're running on fumes, you're not able to service either one of those populations well. So self-care is all about doing activities that actually make a little bit of space for your own needs um, and doing some activity to meet them. And I think that word like self-care has sort of become co-opted by like the spa industry or, you know, like there's this like feeling like, well, self-care is only if I can go on a spa day or go on like this fancy vacation. But no, like self-care might be actually like shutting down or at least, you know, turning off your computer monitor and putting down your phone and just eating lunch, like outdoors maybe, or it could be like just pausing and listening to your favorite song, or it could be going on a short walk. It could be meditation. You know, it's just about like doing these little practices regularly so that you can come back to homeostasis. So the thing that we know about stress from all the research is that it's not so much the any single individual stressful event that's harmful to you uh, to in terms of like long-term health consequences. What is harmful is the prolonged effects of that stress. So something happens, right? Let's say, you know, your client gets a, I don't know, um, like a, an audit notice from the IRS. And, you know, so you can sort of feel like all the adrenaline rushing and you know there's like a whole set of physiological reaction that happens and that will actually help you to perform at your peak but what most of us do is we sort of walk around in that heightened state all the time right so you're not actually allowing your body to relax like ever <laughs> and you know, like a lot of people I talk to there um, I would be like well when's the last time you actually felt relaxed like when's the last time you felt like you were at homeostasis and they're like I don't even know what that means right right <laughs> so, so when you say like that you should take breaks and you I think you use the word regularly so me being a, an attorney I of course want to know what, what does regularly mean like is that you take a moment once a week, once a day? Like, how do you decide what's enough? Yes. So I think that's important to say it is going to depend on you. And also it's sort of counterintuitive, but like the more stress you're under, the more self-care you need. (laughs) It almost, it's like, it's like the thing that you need the most when you feel like you can least have the time to do it. It's important to remember that self-care are activities that only you can do for yourself, right? Like no one else can go on walks for you, like no one else can eat more greens for you, no one else can go to the doctor for you. And so actually saying like, my own well being matters, and I have to be well in order for me to care for others, which is very different than being selfish, because in contrast, being selfish means that I'm taking something away from you for my own gain or benefit. You know, I tell lawyers all the time because lawyers, for those of you that aren't lawyers, you may or may not know this, lawyers keep track of their life in six minute increments. So I always tell lawyers, carve out a single 
0.1 hour, a single six minute every single day and do something for self-care. So for the non-lawyers out there, you can choose 10 minutes a day, five minutes a day, right? Some other time increment. But you know, I, I don't even think it's so much about the duration of any single self-care activity, but the the compounding effects of doing something good for yourself every single day. Gotcha. And so when you say self-care is something that only you can do on your own, does that mean when you've done your self-care, you're done, that you don't need to take any other steps? Or or how does that, you know, do you just keep practicing self-care or should there be a follow-through? Like what should be next? Yeah. So when I say like self-care is something only you can do, it's like, it's, you know, it's activities that is done for you by you. Like I'm not suggesting like these are activities that only you can do like alone, but Mm -hmm. more that these are activities that you are doing for yourself, for your own well-being. So I think that's the first step, right, is when you're sort of feeling like you're running on fumes and you're just tired all the time, you're not sleeping well, your mind is constantly going 150 miles per hour, actually doing, you know, self-care activities and, you know, try doing it for, let's say, 30 days and see how you feel. I also want to say that, you know, there are circumstances and situations where, like, no amount of self-care is going to help you to feel better. And I think when you notice that that's when you know you have to go see a therapist. For the, those of you that are listening out there, they're like, I don't even, you know, it's like there's some telltale signs, depression and other mental health issues. So if you feel like this isn't just about like, I need some, I need a break, I need a pause. If you're just sort of tired and you're sort of running on fumes, like self-care is going to help you to come back to that state of well-being. But there are also situations where you know, you really just need to go and get professional help. And I think also there's just a lot of stigma around going and seeing a therapist. Oh, absolutely. Especially if you're an attorney or a professional, right? Like, I think there's this idea that you should be able to push through, you know, that you don't need anybody else to help you. Right, exactly. Yeah. Or that if you do go and get help, um, there's something wrong with you. Right. Or that you can't be a competent whatever, right? Lawyer, um, CPA, if you do go and get help. Right. We've talked about this before because I've heard you speak before and I'm always like amazed at how well you uh, can talk on this topic. But there are some people like me and and you know this about me that um, just can't bring themselves to calm down. Like it's really hard for me. Like you talk about, you know, the, the six minutes, even six minutes. If I sit in a chair for six minutes, I will think the whole time that I should be doing something else. And I know you mentioned earlier, like you have to kind of teach yourself not to be like that, but that's hard. And so I know that that one of the things that you suggested was meditation. And when you talked about that, um, the first time I ever heard you speak about that, um, you had us do a meditation in the room, the conference room. And I remember being kind of uh, not annoyed, but like when you started, I remember thinking like, this is going to be a waste of my two minutes, right? <laughs> and, um, but it was remarkable. No, it was really, re- no, I was, that was, that was how I went into it. And like, yeah. I'm full on, like being honest, like I thought it was going to be that everybody was going to do, because I've done like in yoga class and stuff before they'll say like, let your mind go empty. And I'm like, I, I don't even know what that means. Right. So I remember you doing that meditation and me, when they brought the lights back up, I'm like, wow, that was like, oddly, bizarrely calming. I just, and mm-hmm. I didn't expect it to be because I probably spent the first 30 seconds of it, like complaining in my head, right? Yeah. I thought it would be really cool if you could kind of teach people like me, 
like, how do you get started? Like, how do you find a minute or two to meditate? What does that look like? Because it's not just sitting, you know, cross-legged on the floor making noises, which is what I think a lot of people imagine meditation is supposed to be like. Maybe we can kind of break out the two. So one is creating a habit of meditation. As I mentioned, meditation is really something, or any of the self-care activities, is really something that you're going to see the benefits when you do it regularly. So it's Mm -hmm. like going on walks or going doing yoga or whatever, you know, those self-care activities are. And so sort of easy things that you can do to incorporate meditation into your daily life. And one is to link it to an existing habit. So, you know, if you brush your teeth every morning, say, you know, I'm going to meditate immediately before I brush my teeth or immediately after I brush. And that's because, you know, it's easy to build on another habit. So I just have a rule that says no coffee uh, before meditation. So I wake up, I meditate, and then I drink my coffee. And I love to drink coffee in the morning. So it's highly motivational. (laughs) That would be motivational (laughs) for me too. Yeah. And then to kind of ask yourself the why, right? Like, what is your aspiration? What is the intention behind having the practice? And I think that's really important to have a clarity around the why, because, you know, initially, like when you start anything new, just that, that newness may carry you through for some period of time. You know, it's like, if you decide you're going to exercise, you might go out and buy, you know, new outfits, new sneakers, and then you're super excited and you do it for two weeks. And then it's just like, yeah, you know, it's no longer this shiny new fun thing anymore. And that's where you really have to dig a little bit deeper and say like, okay, why did I start this practice in the first place? You know, is Mm -hmm. it because you want to just be more present, you know, so that your mind isn't going 150 miles per hour when you're trying to like talk to your husband or uh, hang out with your kids? Or, you know, it's because you just want to be happier, or you just don't want to run on fumes anymore, or you want to have more clarity, or you want to have increased focus and concentration. So really getting clear around the why. And then also to set your expectation pretty low. And that's, again, very, very (laughs) counterintuitive to those of us that are perfectionists. But if you're like, I'd like to get to meditating 30 minutes a day, which is, you know, very aspirational, I think. But I am going to start by doing one minute a day. (laughs) And the reason why I say setting your goals really low is because if you do a meditation every day for 30 days for a minute a day, you are going to definitely see the benefits of doing that practice. And also your goals are set so that you can easily achieve it, right? So even on your busiest day, you know, all of us can find a minute, all of us can find 120 seconds to or 60 and 120 seconds to sit and meditate. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than saying, I'm going to start, you know, doing 30 minutes a day. I think similarly, you know, if you're saying I'm going to go and you know walk every day, or I'm going to do whatever well-being activity every day, I highly recommend setting the bar low. (laughs) So those are sort of three tips for creating a new habit. And then to address sort of your second part of the how do I meditate? One, you don't need to sit cross-legged on the floor. You can sit um, on your bed. You can do the practice lying down. You can just sit in your office chair. You can sit on the couch. You can sit in any chair that feels comfortable for you. So actually being physically comfortable is helps because you don't want to sort of sit and think about how uncomfortable you are the entire time you're sitting there meditating. The second thing is like the biggest misperception about meditation is that you have to clear your mind. And it's kind of like what you said, right? You're right. sitting in your yoga <laughs> and to teach yourself, just let all of your thoughts go. That is not going to happen. I can guarantee you our minds are these powerful thought making machines. And I can guarantee you, you will have thoughts and that's fine. 
So what we want to learn to do is to stop resisting against the thoughts, right? So you're sitting there, you know, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. And then your mind is like, oh, did I remember respond to that email? And what was the thing that the client needed? And like, you know, your mind starts yammering. And Mm -hmm. often what happens is you think, oh, I'm meditating. I'm screwing this up. There is a thought. I am screwing this up. I am failing at this. Look, you're a terrible meditator. You can't even do the (laughs) simple thing. And you shouldn't even be meditating. I mean, you know, you're just failing at this thing. So just stop doing it. Right. That's what, see, that's what happens with me. Right. You know, after yoga, I felt so bad that I couldn't do it. I remember laughing, leaving yoga. And then one of the people like glared at me and I'm like, I just made everybody not calm anymore. Like, it's just that, and then you worry. And then there's a whole nother set of anxiety, right? Yeah. So letting all of that go. So when you're noticing that the mind is engaged in thinking, you go, oh, look, isn't that interesting? The mind is thinking. And so not to like think about the content of your thoughts or or to engage in negative self-talk or judgment about the thoughts, but just coming back to the meditation, you go, oh, there goes the mind again. And then you return it back to the breath or whatever the object of attention is. So often like they use the matter- metaphor of training a puppy. Right? You have a puppy, you tell the puppy, sit. And then what does a puppy do? The puppy goes running away. Right? And it's like very similar. And then you go and like with just a ton of affection and kindness and, you know, probably a little bit of like, you're a puppy, you're super cute. You go and gently pick up the puppy, you bring it back and you tell the puppy set. Same thing with our own minds, because when the mind comes back to itself, right, that is the whole essence of the meditation. But if every time the mind comes back to itself, you berate it, right, you, you know, kind of going back to the metaphor of you training a puppy, you hit it with, you know, rolled up newspaper, the mind is not going to want to come back to itself. It's going to be like, no, I kind of like this daydreaming or I kind of like this catastrophizing land or I like this, you know, other space where I get to sit here and worry about everything. So to train the mind to come back to the present moment rather than, you know, thinking about all the what ifs and thinking about, you know, what happens after July 15th or, you know, like whatever those thoughts may be. Right. Why don't you give us an example of how one would do that? Yeah, so why don't we do a two-minute guided meditation, and I'll talk you through it. How does that sound? Awesome. All right. Okay, so before we even do anything, like close the eyes and do all of that, what we want to do is actually pay attention to how we're sitting. And often we don't do that, and we are, of course, most of us are sitting all day long. So let's just start by placing both feet firmly on the floor. So if you have your legs crossed, uncrossing them. And just taking a moment to notice how you're sitting. So it might feel nice to roll the shoulders back and opening up the chest area because we're often typing all day. And so rolling your shoulders back a few times. You might also feel nice to bring your shoulders up to your ears and allow them to drop. And then allowing your eyes to soften and close. And when you close the eyes, it's a very different experience than having the eyes open. So just taking a moment to notice whatever it is you're able to notice and observe with the eyes closed.
And let's start the practice by taking a few deep breaths. So if you'd like, you can place one hand right over your belly button and we're going to breathe from the belly. So let's take three deep breaths. So breathing in through the nose and exhaling through the nose. Two more times, breathing in, breathing out. One more, breathing in and breathing out. And for the next little while, we're going to just sit and pay attention to the breath. So not thinking about how you're breathing, but feeling the physical experience of the breath. Breathing in, breathing out. And hanging out with the breath for a little while. And now let's close the practice by beginning to wiggle the fingers and toes. You can stretch if it feels good, moving your body in any way that feels good to you. And when you feel ready, allow the eyes to open. And so there you go. It's a two-minute meditation. Awesome. Thank you. I feel relaxed already. I actually love that you uh, said to think of it like a time, like um, before you brush your teeth or or before you have your coffee, because I I would agree that having like a routine is really helpful, especially for people who are really busy all day, like we kind of rely on routines, right? So I think that's really awesome. Are there any other tips that you would have for how people can incorporate some relaxation, whether it's, you know, meditation or some other kind of, of self care that they can maybe take with them, especially at times when they're more frantic than others, because obviously, it's really easy to factor in those go for a walks, you know, when you're on vacation. It's harder when you're up against the July 15 deadline. So do you have any additional tips as to how you might be able to maybe recognize when it's a good time to take a break? I want to just say that I think self-care really needs to be a non-negotiable activity every day or something as close to every day as possible. So we, you're right. Like we may not have time to go on a leisurely walk for an hour every day, but I would argue that we, all of us can take 10 minutes, right. To go out and walk around the block. And the reason why self-care is so important is that it actually helps you to do your job better. Like, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of like thinking about something, right. Maybe it's a really complex issue or you know, like, and you're just kind of turning it over, like thinking about it and just over and over, over again in your head. And then you go and shift, right? And you do something different. You go on a walk, you, you know, take a bath or you're gardening or you're doing the dishes or you're taking a shower. And then all of a sudden it's like your you know, mind just clicks. And then you come up with a really um, creative way to figure out a solution um, to that problem. So Actually, having the mind be relaxed will help you to do your job and, you know, kind of everything in your life better. Whatever the, the blank is, right, whatever time frame it is, 
And as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't matter so much whether it's five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day. It's more important to have a regular um, activities. So it's much, much better to meditate for, let's say, a minute a day for 30 days rather than just sitting a single time for 30 minutes. Right. That makes a lot of sense because um, you may know that I love to garden. I love to dig in the dirt. It just makes me feel better. And I have some of my best ideas when I'm mowing the grass. And I do. Th- I, it makes sense now that you, you say that like that because I'm not really thinking about anything and I'm still thinking about everything, but it's in a different context. Yeah, no, that's that's great, great advice. Um, and I think just kind of pausing and asking yourself, like, what are my needs? What are the activities that I enjoy? What are the activities that gives me um, kind of, you know, fills your bucket or it charges your own battery and doing that because there's no like single one size fits all self-care activity that's going to work right for everyone. You know, the things that I do for self-care now with a 13 month old baby looks very, very different than what I did, you know, even two years ago. I was actually going to ask, like, how do you incorporate that as a parent? Because that is the other challenge. And I know you brought, you mentioned that earlier, but if you're already that person who it's really difficult for you to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, ratchet it down from the office, like calm yourself down from, from being at the office all day. And then you come home and you, you know, you and I have mentioned that kids grow up so fast and you feel like you don't want to miss a single minute. Like, how do you kind of justify, I'm going to sit here without my kids for a couple minutes, but they want to lay on me while they watch TV. Right. And I think if you take that five, 10 minutes to center yourself and kind of you know, let go of the busyness of the mind, you're going to be able to engage with your kids more. I mean, you know, I'm I'm sure you've had the experience of like, you're sitting there with your kids eating dinner or whatever, and else helping them with their homework, but like your mind is still back at the office, like your oh, mind yeah. is still churning, <laughs> right? So I think having, recognizing, right? And so that's where like the meditation practice is so important because you start to recognize, oh, my mind is someplace different. And then you learn to bring it back, right? And so in the meditation, you learn to bring it back to the breath or whatever the object of the meditation is. And sort of in everyday life, you go, oh, I'm, you know, helping my daughter with her homework, but my mind is still thinking about that conversation I had back at the office. I think also just having some sort of a ritual um, in place is really helpful. You know, like get a lot of questions from parents who are lawyers. It's like, you know, how do I sort of transition from work mode to home mode. Um, so actually having like a little ritual. So if you commute, and of course, a lot of us aren't commuting right now, but you know, if you commute, like before you insert your key into your door, you know, you just pause and take a deep breath and just, you know, pausing, maybe even closing your eyes for a second and like taking a deep breath in and taking a deep breath out and just reminding yourself like, okay, like now I'm home and, you know, how do I want to show up in this space? Or it could be, you know, you put your keys down and you immediately go wash your hands and you kind of slow down and you really feel the sensation of the water and the soap against um, your hands. And then to kind of go back to your question about, you know, how do you make time when you have kids? I mean, a lot of mornings I'm sitting in my daughter's play area. So we have like this space that's sort of blocked off. So she can't go crawling anywhere. And I'll just set my timer for like five, 10 minutes. And I'll just sit there with my eyes closed and I'll meditate while she plays and do, you know, does her thing. And sometimes she's like, what's mom doing? Right. And she wants to crawl into my lap and like <laughs> sure. kind of pull on my hair and try to open my eyelids. And, and, but like, I just sit there and I meditate and I think that's 
that's at least how I want to show up for my daughter because, you know, this is something that I want to model for her. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. want to make like a big deal of it, but it's just something that mom does. It's also something that dad does too. So I just want this to be like a regular part of what happens in our house. And I think similarly, whatever your self-care activity is, whether it be, you know, just like closing the door, putting in your AirPods and listening to your favorite song for six minutes or taking a bath or sewing or, you know, or reading or whatever it is, just have it be like a normal thing that you do. And initially your kids may be like, what are they doing? I don't like this thing that they're doing, but you know, they'll get used to it. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, because I do think that your traditions and the things that you do that your kids are used to, like we always eat dinner together at, at night, like you teach your kids how to treat you. So that's a really, I think that's a really great reminder that they're watching you. And if you tell them that this is my time, you know, that should become habit. Yeah. And also depending on the age of your kids, you know, of course, meditation for kids is also very, very beneficial. I mean, there's just like a really high rate of anxiety for children, like even little kids now, and they're regularly prescribing meditation as a tool to help kids let go of stress and anxiety too. So this can, you know, there's like a thousand different apps out there for kids meditation. So, you know, it can just be like something that you do as a family. So it can actually not take time away from family time, but actually this could be a form of family time that you do together. Right. Are there any apps that you would recommend for adults? Are there any that are your favorites? If not, that's cool. But I was just wondering when you mentioned that, because I do think sometimes, especially those of us who work at a computer all the time are kind of tied to the idea of needing something in your phone or in your in your computer? Is there anything you'd recommend? Yeah, I love um, Insight Timer. And I've tried a lot of them. I just like Insight Timer. I've also heard a lot of good things about Calm. Mm-hmm. Choose one meditation app and stick with it. Because the other thing that I've also kind of seen for myself and heard from other people is like, well, there's 46 different meditation apps when I type in meditation app on my right. phone. And so now I feel like I have to like download them all and try to figure out the right one for me. like really kind of keeping the practice as simple as possible. I like Insight Timer because it does a really nice job of tracking your meditation. So I like data and whenever, you know, when I go into the app, it tells me exactly how many minutes I meditated for this year and for the last seven years, you know, it's just, I like having that data. Um, You also get gold stars for when you meditate. And I just feel like as adults, like I think we just need more gold stars. I I agree, we do. Actually, that makes a lot of sense because a lot of my audience, we're, we're numbers people. So that that's very appealing. Yeah. Um, and there's like thousands of different meditations on there. And so, you know, you can kind of choose. I generally tend to just meditate in silence and I use it mainly for timekeeping. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like lots of great music. You know, I mean, you'll be able to find something that you like. If you're more like I need a program kind of person, like I need someone to be like, okay, today you do this and tomorrow I'm going to do that. So it's more like prescriptive. Mm -hmm. Headspace is a really good app. That's also you have to pay for it. But I like Headspace just in terms of like people who like to just be given homework. Then it's like, I just want to do my homework. Um, So if you're more like that, I think Headspace is a really good program as well. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Gina. This is like super valuable. Again, I think a lot of people are really feeling stressed right now. And this is uh, advice I think we can all use. And you guys uh, can find out more about Gina from her website at ginacho.com, where you can also sign up for mindfulness tips and buy her book. And she will also be teaching a daily 10-minute meditation program Monday through Friday 
And I will have that link for you in the show notes. So again, thanks so much, Gina. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And that will do it for this episode. You can find me on the web at Tax Girl on Twitter and Facebook. And you can sign up for my free newsletter at taxgirl.com. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.